0: Hi, everyone. I'm Margie Alanis, and this is Farmher Talks, thoughtful conversations to connect and inspire the farmher in all of us. This episode is brought to you by Nationwide, and as usual, they are on our side and your side, too. And in the continuing conversation around Everybody Eats everybody eats and all food starts at the farm, as we all know. And, um, you know, we've been having this conversation uh, for a while now about food insecurity. And as we've worked our way through a global pandemic, and what farmers are doing, and what the realities of the situation are, and how we all can help. Okay. And so, It's been a really, really uh, great opportunity to bring in so many different parts and pieces of the food chain. And today, we are going to be talking to a woman who is not only a leader in her industry, but who is leading an organization that is making massive change in people's lives when it comes to food insecurity. We're gonna be talking to Claire Babineau Fontenot, who oversees the nation's largest domestic hunger relief organization and second largest U.S. charity. This is huge, you guys. Feeding America is a nationwide network of 200 food banks and over 60,000 food pantries and meal programs, okay? So if there is a food pantry in your area that you're aware of, most likely if you roll your way all the way up to the top, it starts with Feeding America. And Claire is leading that organization. So we're going to be talking to her about uh, leadership as a woman in this industry. We're going to be talking to her about making sure that everybody eats and food insecurity and the realities of this in our country right now. So let's take it to Claire. Okay, today we are talking with Claire Babineau-Fontenau, who is the CEO of Feeding America, which I know all of you listening have heard of at some point or another. And so Claire, thank you so much for joining us on Farm Her Talks. I am so excited to have you here.
1: Well, I am equally excited to be your guest. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yes, wonderful. Okay, let's let's start out. Let's paint a little bit of a picture of who you are, because you are different from some of our other guests, you know, when we have people who are engaged in production, agriculture, or maybe on the professional side of agriculture, but you play a really big role in food in this country, and, you know, food and farming go hand in hand, so it makes perfect sense that you're here, but let's paint a little bit of a picture. Can you tell me first a little bit about yourself, like what's your background, and, and what led you to this position?
1: Absolutely. I'll try to make it short. It's a rather (laughs) long story. Um, So let me start with the fact that my foundation is actually in rural America. Um, I'm from a small town called Opelousas, Louisiana. Um, My grandparents on both sides were farmers. They were sharecroppers. Um, It's a good thing that you didn't think you were um, having an expert on farming on farming on because I'm far from that. But I have dug my fair share of sweet potatoes and picked some cotton in my day, too, That's as great. a child. Um, but I grew up in that community and um, I have a bit of a unique family story, which definitely has something to do with why I'm in the role that I'm in right now. So I'm going to try to spend a little time on that and then, and then accelerate forward to this moment. Yes, please. Um, But when, when my mom was expecting me um, in September of 1963, she heard that there were two little kids who were struggling uh, with neglect and abuse and food insecurity. Uh, She picked them up, brought them home. My dad got back and his family had doubled. Um, (laughs) Over the years, uh, there are one hundred and eight of us through birth, uh, through biology adoption and foster care. Wow, so When I say that I come from a really big family, I mean a really big family. yeah, for sure. And throughout so throughout the course of my life, i I knew something that um, is not part of the American overall consciousness around hunger. Um, Because the normal path to becoming a member of our family was through neglect, abuse, or some combination. And so most of my siblings were struggling with food insecurity when they joined us. Mm -hmm. So my mom never had to do what other moms have to do to get their picky eaters to eat. She didn't have to talk to us about distant shores where there were people struggling with hunger because we all knew that hunger was here. Yeah. In in the United States. So I've been going around with this understanding my whole life. And as I've, I, but I've had these remarkable opportunities that I still believe that it's only in this country that you get to have stories like mine, where um, my parents did not uh, have the privilege of graduating from high school, but I did. Right. and. I went from high school to undergrad to law school. Then I got an LLM, which my mom was like, what was wrong with her first law degree? She's got two (laughs) law degrees. I've had these remarkable opportunities to work in government. Um, I worked in big four accounting at PwC. I worked in a major law firm. Um, And then I worked at Walmart, the top of industry. Mm -hmm. Um, But while at Walmart, Uh, where I became the executive vice president of finance and treasurer at Walmart, I had a huge event happen, which was I learned that I had cancer. Oh, wow. And then everything changed. Yeah. So in 2015, um, wrapped in the ugly package of cancer was a wake-up call for me that I don't get to be here always. And I started leaving Walmart, which was a wonderful place for me, But I started leaving Walmart and moving toward where I am now. So I'm so excited that now in this work, in this moment, as as challenging as it all is for so many people, I'm so pleased that I get to partner with people like the ones who listen to this podcast, uh, like the people at Nationwide who are great partners in this work with us. And I'm, I'm glad that I get
0: to wake up every morning focused on how I can help vulnerable communities. So yeah. I hope that answers your question. That definitely does answer my question. And, and, uh, you know, life is twisty and turny and windy and our paths never look quite like we think they will. And uh, an experience like cancer, I, I can't imagine how it must change how you think. Was, uh, going to work for an organization like Feeding America, Was that like, you know, when, when you said, I knew that I, you know, maybe tomorrow isn't promised, right? Um, was it the type of organization that you were going towards that? Can you tell me a little bit more about, about why you headed to Feeding America?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I had uh, a moment where I asked myself, um, what if the last thing that I ever got to do professionally were the last thing that I could possibly do at Walmart? Would that be okay? And my answer was no. Right. So I knew that I was going to dedicate the rest of my professional life, um, to, um, causes that I cared deeply about. I had no idea I was going to go to feeding America per se. I also knew that if I didn't leave Walmart, you know, if I waited until the perfect opportunity showed up that I would never leave. When I got to Walmart, I thought I was only going to be there for about two years. Mm-hmm. And then 13-ish years later, I was, I was leaving because it was a remarkable opportunity for me to grow, learn, flourish. Um, so I didn't know specifically it would be Feeding America, but I knew it would be nonprofit. I absolutely knew that that's what I was going to go do. Um, but that's how I wanted to deploy whatever talents I have yeah. it was going to be um, serving vulnerable communities. I knew that part.
0: Well, I, I love that. And, you know, I think, I mean, regardless of what your role is or where you are or what you're doing, I think we all have these points that we hit in life where where we kind of go, if my life fast forwarded 20 years, would I be happy if this was the end of, of my career, right? Like, you know, what else do I have to give? And, and I can tell you, I've found myself in that same situation. And I promise there's people out there nodding that uh, are in or have been in that same situation and it's it's one of those things. that's like gosh, give yourself the grace to make a change sometimes, right? Because uh, really cool things Absolutely. can happen. Really cool things. And,
1: and you know what? And I do think it's important, though, also to acknowledge that you can bloom where you're planted. Right. I don't think it's everybody has to decide to leave the for-profit world, for instance, in order to to um, go into the non-profit world. I don't believe that that, in fact, what everyone was meant to do. I'm confident that's what I was meant to do. Um, I do urge people to do self-assessments where they ask themselves, what do they think they're meant to do and, and how can they help from where they are? And again, your audience happens to be an audience that is helping already. I mean, when, when they, if they see statistics, like I'm today, um, one of the things I'm so excited that I get a, a chance to report is that from March First, through the end of October, that together the Feeding America network, with partners like Nationwide, have provided over four billion meals to people. Wow! Um, wow. About four point two—that's another two hundred million. About four point two billion meals yeah. to people. So um, more and more people are. Expecting the organizations that they serve in, um, including farmers mm-hmm. out there who I hope will be listening as well. Um, they we have expectations that we get to be multidimensional, and that our organizations can be multidimensional too. And we have an expectation uh, that we can we can do good in the world uh, yeah. from wherever we stand, um, wherever we're planted. Um, do you like that little farm metaphor? I love it. That's Um, great.
0: And it is so true. You know, I always point out, you don't have to jump off the cliff or make massive changes. It can be slight shifts. I always, my friend Krista at Nationwide, right? Like I always use this example, you know, in, in looking for ways to engage more women in agriculture. And she's, she's a professional who didn't, she's not a farmer. Right. And, uh, you know, she found a way within her organization to form a group that really lifted people up and herself too, you know, so it's just, you know, bloom where you're planted. I love that. I mean, it's, it's, It's got to be what works for you, Uh, but I'm so glad that you found your way to Feeding America. So let's talk a little bit about what your role is today and like what what is your day-to-day when you're in a role like this?
1: Oh, okay. So um, my role today, it is my great privilege to serve as the CEO of Feeding America. We are a network of 200 member food banks, over 60,000 agency partners, meal programs, around the United States and over 2 million volunteers. So a vast network of people who wake up every morning thinking, trying to do what I'm trying to do, um, which is to try to help people um, to get the food that they need um, for themselves and for their family. So in my chair, I have opportunities to be, on a day-to-day basis, to be an ambassador for our work. I have an opportunity to be an ambassador for our partners too. and and more than anything, I, I have a chance to work hard to try to help people facing hunger to emerge out of out of food insecurity. Yeah. So a day in the life, if we took today, um, would be a morning that started uh, with an appearance on a certain uh, network at 6:30 a.m. <laughs> um, that's the way my day started. Uh, my day will has included. Um, brainstorming and strategic sessions, talking with members of the executive team at Feeding America. It's included interactions with um, some of our members, uh, member food banks, and these are leaders in their own right. Uh, we have, you know, across the country, 200 discrete um, nonprofit organizations that have their big complex enterprises uh, and that we try to help. So I'll have conversations there, not only about addressing near-term issues, but also longer-term issues too. And then I talk to um, people like you, right? So I will end my day being on Instagram for the first time ever. So I'm supposed to tap into Instagram live for something. Um, I hope that works. I just hope it works. It'll work great. um, To say I am not sophisticated in such things uh, is too understated. So that's that's what my day tends to be like. I wake up early. Um, Again, I'm from rural America. I'm accustomed to waking up early. Um, I tend to go to sleep um, after working a long day, but it's consistently um, with a lot of gratitude and satisfaction because of what I get to work on.
0: Oh my goodness. Yes. I mean, when I hear numbers like, you know, 4.2 billion meals, I mean, that's, that's almost income. I can't, I I can't quite wrap my brain around that and, and the structure (laughs) and the organization and the layers that must occur for all of that to happen. So um, yeah. last think, year it took, we were 5 billion for the whole year last year, by the way. And that was my question. That next. Yeah. Yeah. Like w- when we talk about growth and shifting and pivoting and change, which are all words that, you know, I think we're all tired of hearing for this year, but it's the reality and, and it's where we are, you know, so you said 5 billion meals for the total year last year, but in just seven months of this year, you're, you're, you know, knocking on that door. So that's been a massive change. And so let's talk a little bit about how Feeding America has shifted to meet this intensely growing, changing uh, demand.
1: Absolutely. So let me start with, uh, hopefully the audience heard me when I said it's my privilege to serve mm-hmm. as, um, as CEO of Feeding America. This network of food banks and agency partners, um, it's a they are some, they're, they're across the spectrum, multidimensional, right? So we have some really, really large food banks, and some of our partners are really large organizations, and we have um, really small ones as well, um, and everything in between. And to witness how the, the network had to change on a dime, we have to change our distribution model. What, what we had historically before COVID um, under, for instance, USDA regulations, there were lots of congregate feeding requirements because it made, kind of made sense, right? So if you're going to feed a bunch of kids, you're gonna, if you need to feed a, a, a large amount of children, well, you bring them all together, right? right. And you feed them. Well, during COVID, that's not the best, uh, healthiest, safest way to do that. So we've had to work through those types of regulations and we've also had to work through. So if not in a congregate environment, then how will you make certain that these children get access to food? So we've um, our network has um, has turned it around, has come up with um, low and um, almost no contact service to people. That's why you see those long lines sometimes on TV of cars at Food, drive, at food distribution sites mm-hmm. where our members themselves are getting out there and getting nutritious food and putting it in the trunk of a car and allowing that group of people to move forward. But the things you don't see where some changes are being made is, let's go back to some of those kids, for instance, yeah. where some of those children are in homes where they can't afford a car. Right. Right. So how are we going to get to them? So we have members who have traced bus routes for kids where we know that that particular community has a significant, um, portion of, of the, of the children there, uh, qualified for free or reduced lunch. And we have members that track with the bus route, um, and, and make certain that we go into those communities and help people in rural America. There already are so many challenges around food deserts, right? Right. Um, so we have, um, we have expanded uh, our mobile pantry distributions where we take a nutritious mix of food and we bring it into the community where people who need it are. One of my great privileges is that I often am at those food distributions mm-hmm. and I witness people coming um, in need of help. And sometimes... Um, they start out and I can tell uh, that they're feeling some embarrassment or shame over their, their current circumstance. And then I, I get to watch, and sometimes I get to provide some of the food myself, um, but witnessing how when they're treated with dignity and respect, how affirming that clearly is to them and how they can lift their heads up. And then I get to go to sleep at night that night, for instance, after food distribution, having the faces of people in my mind that I know for a fact that that senior who was in that line has food tonight. I know for a fact that that mom went back with food that she could provide to her children. Mm -hmm. Um, It is some of the most gratifying work of my whole life. It's certainly the most gratifying work of my professional life. So I've watched us change the model to accommodate the circumstance. And it's a big, organization. So being able to do that, that only happens when you get to partner as I do with people who are so deeply committed to this mission that they know that if they don't change,
0: people won't have food. So they must change
1: and they have. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I got chills as you were talking about it because to have people at, at, all layers in this organization, I mean, in, in massive amounts of layers that care so much to trace a bus route to make sure that those kids on that yeah. route have food is, um, like, that's good. That, that I'm so happy <laughs> that, you know, that yeah. you guys have that community of people that are doing that because it is very real, you know, like all the way from the top, all the way down to, you know, the Grimes food bank here, uh, you know, just down the road from me, um, or the food pantry. I, it's so very necessary it's so very necessary and so yeah. you mentioned briefly um, the challenges in rural America and um, you know when when you hear a number like 60,000 uh, food food pantries um, you know you think well man basically everybody must have access to something like this but that's just not the case and and we know it and, and anybody listening who's been in rural America realizes that you know, uh, like you said people may not have a car or if there's one place in the entire county somewhere in North Dakota you know they may not be able to easily get there and it is a challenge and so i love to hear about the the mobile food banks is there anything else um that can help paint a picture for the the reality and, and the the challenges that lie in feeding people in rural america
1: so um the good news is that I I'm speaking to an audience that has probably has an even deeper understanding of the answer to this question than I do. Yeah. So I came from, I come out of rural America. Um, but let me throw out a few statistics, maybe um, of 87% of the counties with the highest rates of food insecurity in this whole country are rural. Yeah. 86% of the counties with the highest percentage of children at risk for food insecurity are rural. Mm -hmm. And what is so hard, um, there are are many elements of it that are difficult, Um, but one of them for me is knowing that it is in rural America that, Um, with farmers who are out there producing this remarkable food. And I want to get a chance to talk about what farmers have done for this movement, by the way. So we've, we've got to make sure we have time for that. We will, but that, that often um, people who live adjacent to those farms aren't getting the food. And so we're having to find creative ways to get the food back into the places where the food is actually being produced. We can we can do better than this, and we've been uh, we've always had relationships with partners throughout uh, with farmers. Um, I think since the inception of food banking by our founder John Van Engel, Um, those relationships have only deepened over time, and they're absolutely essential to the future. Is that those relationships get even deeper, and that we we Convene people from the farming community, um, large, medium, and and small farmers as well, and that we we sit together and think about what I often refer to as what if what if we just started from scratch, mm-hmm. right? What if we threw away the old playbook? What w- what would we write together? How can we solve for some of these really virulent issues? That people face, and and again, my heart goes out to people in rural America. I used to be a, a poor little girl in rural America. Um, I, I'd like to think I would care, even if I were not, um, but but I am, mm-hmm. and I do.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's it it is one of the strangest things. The way that you put it, you know, when uh, people who live next door to that field where so much food is being grown could be going hungry. And so, my challenge to everybody listening is. Uh, maybe think about how the playbook could be rewritten in your area or with what you do, because these are the ways that, that change can occur, right? Like we all have the ability to to make some change or to think about something differently. And you never know where that will come from. And it is a challenge and it's an ongoing challenge. So let's talk a little bit about the people that we've been talking about the farmers, the farm hers. Yeah. Um, so Throughout this pandemic, I think a a different light has been um, shined on farming and agriculture as a community because, you know, as a broad population, when you go to the grocery store and all the shelves are full, you don't have to worry about it. Right. But, but when the, uh, the food system starts to break down in different ways and you have this major concern about how is food getting from one place to the next and how is that chain staying connected? Uh, it, it, became very visible, you know, of, of the way that our food system works and what farmers, uh, the, the big role, like, I, I mean, I, I can't say this enough. I say it to people all the time. If you ate today, it started at the farm in, in one way, shape, or form. I don't care what you ate. Some part of it started there, you know. And so uh, it's it's an eye-opening thing when we stop to think about it. Um, so has your organization uh, had to make any shifts or changes to work with farmers uh, to make sure that the food gets to where it needs to go? Like, tell me a little bit about how you guys look at that.
1: Oh, yeah. So, so I, I mentioned before we've had relationships with farmers for a very long time. But during COVID, one of the things that I know every farmer out there who saw it um, must have cringed at the idea that people were throwing away um, milk, raw milk or or eggs, and that was getting people's attention, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And and then they'd see juxtaposed against the long food, uh, food bank line and go, oh, something's wrong with this picture. Well, yeah, something's wrong with the picture, but the problem isn't the farmer. (laughs) The problem is a system that um, is built such that the farmer can't afford to give it away. We've got to do something about that system, right? So we have to reinvent um, and have an infrastructure in place that incentivizes the kinds of win-wins that are possible. um, I so we've definitely had I have personally participated in, and by extension, members of the team have definitely participated in in conversations with farmers. Um, we've thought about how do we get through this period together. We've had outreach to the USDA about, for instance, when there were those regulations in place, mm-hmm. um having the voices of farmers talking to Secretary Purdue about how important it is to remove these barriers, that went a long way because of the credibility that the American farmer has with us and and universally inside of the United States. So that partnership, absolutely. When, when I'm confused on, on something, I tend to go find experts. We've got a lot of farmers who are experts and we've been trying our best to learn from them. Um, and I think it's resulted in, remember that 4.2 billion meals uh, from, from March to October, that would not be possible without those collaborations with farmers. Um, I did want to also mention, if you'll indulge it, that I mentioned that I go out to food distribution. And I just, um, I wish farmers could see some of what I see. Um, and it chokes me up to think about how I'll go to urban centers sometimes as well, right? Because our footprint is, I say, wherever there's hunger, we're there. Mm-hmm. And since there's no county in the whole United States that does not have food security inside of it, that means we have to touch every county yep. um, and we do. So I'll, I remember vividly being in um, in the, the area around New York City. I was in, in the Bronx at a food distribution and I remember seeing this little girl and <laughs> she saw kale for the first time mm-hmm. while I was right next to her. <laughs> so she's with her mom and she sees kale. This kale was produced here in the United States. Right. Yep. And she didn't know what to do with kale. Well, what's kale? And then there was some people from within our network who had um, a, um, a demo that was being done where they cut up the kale and they put it inside of a salad and they included pineapple juice and chunks of pineapple and also threw in some carrots. And the little girl right next to me learned how much she loves kale. Yeah. And that gets to play out across the country all the time. And it's, um, it's, it's because of your audience that that happens. Uh, I'm, Again, I'm, I just feel so deeply grateful for what they do, and so I'm glad that I got the chance to to be here to address them. And And may I talk about the fact that I'm pretty geeked out over the fact that it's Farm Her yeah. and that you guys are highlighting the fact that almost 40% of, of farm operators are women? That is an untold story. It is. People... The, the the American public does not understand um, that a significant part of the engine that's driving that remarkable produce and and abundance um, would be coming from women like the ones that we celebrate through this podcast. So, brava! Yeah, ladies,
0: um, brava! Uh, it, it, thank you. It is an untold story and one that's so important to us. And uh, I can tell you that. Uh, over the last seven years over 350 women that I've been able to meet and tell an in-depth story and sh- share her life and her role in in feeding people um, they all do it because they love the land they love the animals they want to provide for their community they want to nurture um you know it, it's not um, the type of life or um, the the way of making an income that most people would choose because it can be very difficult, uh, but they do it because they care so deeply. no matter who they are or no matter where they're doing it, like I see that across them and uh, it is it is one of the most uh, amazing subsets of our society that I have the blessing to share their stories. So I'm thank you for, for recognizing that and um, appreciating them because they are a really, really big part of making sure that we all get to eat. Um, okay, so we're getting close to the end here, Claire. Um, what is the biggest challenge that Feeding America has in the coming months? I mean, you guys have, have undergone massive change and shift and, you know, fed more people than you probably could have ever planned for a year ago. What is your biggest challenge as you look to the future?
1: Okay, so definitely, um, I'm I'm really concerned in the near term about the fact that Um, the programs that have given rise to so much opportunity to serve through uh, the partnerships that we have with farmers, um, they're sunsetting some of them. So um, about half of the food that we receive from USDA and that we have used to help people facing hunger um, is scheduled to go away at the end of this year. Mm -hmm. While we are looking at 60% increase in need. Um, That is really deeply concerning to me. So in the transition from whatever administration to another administration, we can't let people facing hunger get lost in the gap. No. So um, I mentioned before, it is, it is right and good that farmers have the reputation and brand that they do with the USDA. They've earned it. I encourage your audience to use their voices, to talk to the USDA about how it is that they might, there's still some some undeployed revenue that they already have committed for some of these programs. If they could reach out in some way and ask the USDA to please go ahead and make those purchases, because they know better than I do Mm -hmm. that you don't just go from the point of purchase to delivery of the food immediately. It takes a while. And we're looking at January, February, March um, of having some serious gaps, Uh, 50% of one of the principal ways that we are able to provide food to people facing hunger um, going away. That's a really big deal. It's critical. So that is my biggest ask of, of this audience is continued partnership in ensuring that the USDA understands how important these uh, efforts are to you um, and, and how important they are to people facing hunger. Um, we've got to get through this bridge period um, and we've got to help people. You know, every time I hear that um, there's a shutdown, some element of shutdown and that there are, are businesses that are closing, I think, oh, my gosh, um, they're going to be missing meals. When I hear that kids are not going to be in school, mm-hmm. I know they're going to be missing meals. Um, the American part farmer is a critically important part of closing that gap. Um, this would be a time to double down on that partnership,
0: um, not to eliminate an important aspect of it. I uh I didn't see I, I didn't expect you to say that but that makes complete sense and it is something you're right that that uh, our audience has a voice and uh, even when you think your voice isn't strong it is and you know uh, one comment can make all the change. So I would encourage anybody uh, who's been listening to, to use your voice and to express your concern over this, because um, that, that is a scary number um, of people that could potentially uh, have, have these feeding programs at risk that are so very important. So um, thank yeah. you for sharing that.
1: And of course I'm, I'm going to, they're going to get mad at me back at the office. <laughs> if I don't mention that you can also go to feedingamerica.org, uh, where you can find, Um, We have a food bank locator on that website where whatever community it is that you care the most about, you can help that community by investing in that food bank and their work. You can find that food bank there. If you want to be a part of the national solutions, then there are ways for you to do that as well. Um, But I've got to tell you for this audience, um, what I said before, that would be my number one ask. Um, And as you said, I mean, these are powerful, powerful voices. Um, uh, people who have earned remarkable brand and reputation, I hope that they leverage that um, for their neighbors who are desperately in need right now.
0: Of course. Yeah. Yep, for sure. It it really does matter. So um, thank you for sharing that. Okay. So one uh, real quick thing here at the end. Um, I love to ask this of, of women who are in leadership positions, and I'm, I'm so thankful for uh, the people of America that you are in the position that you're in and that you have such care and concern over it. If you could give one piece of advice to a young woman who's listening to this and saying, I want to go be her. I want to I be Claire when I grow up. Uh, what would that piece of uh-huh. advice be? Uh,
1: well, I, I think my advice would be, um, uh, if I may turn that, that question around just a little bit, it would be, please don't try to be clear. <laughs> but oh my goodness, go be you. Yeah. Go be you. Um, I am um, what I think could be properly referred to as a dark horse. When you, if my story tells anything, let it be the remarkable, remarkable opportunities we have to thrive in this country. Um, When you think about the odds uh, of the grandchild of sharecroppers with parents who didn't graduate from high school, getting the opportunity to do the things that I've gotten the opportunity to do. I mean, it's absolutely remarkable. And it just doesn't happen other than here. So know that it is
0: possible. So what your heart is telling you,
1: um,
0: it's possible. Yeah. Go after it. I love that. Go after it. Take those words of advice, everybody listening, and uh, whatever it is, you can go after it. So, Claire, thank you so much for sharing your insight and uh, a little bit of discussion about food insecurity and rural America and farmers and, and how that all plays into the very important work that you're doing. So thank you so much for being on Farm Her Talks today.
1: Well, I'm honored to have been your guest, and I hope I get to come back. What a good news story one day. Yes.